Your palms are sweating, it's getting crowded and your personal space no longer seems personal. The police are to your left, ready to shut everything down. You're scared of being arrested, yet this fear comes nowhere near to the terror you would feel if the movement failed. You find courage in the pit of your stomach, picking up the placard you spent hours perfecting the night before. You look out into the crowd and realise you are one drop in this ocean of people. You're surrounded by strangers, by people who you wouldn't normally associate with in everyday life. But it doesn't matter. In this moment, it isn't just your heart you can hear racing, or just your blood boiling in anger at our flawed country. It's the collective around you. You're all connected by the passion that's brought you here, the dedication to justice. But now imagine not being allowed to voice this anger. Your right to freely express your disgust of a failing system, a failing leadership, dissipates. Your voice is silenced. Except, you don't need to imagine. You don't need to imagine your voice being silenced because the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill is the start of this becoming a reality. You're listening to Lauren Dennis in The Dying Art of Protesting. The Extinction Rebellion protests in 2019 were incredibly disruptive. The BBC explains that the group describes themselves as a non-violent movement, bringing issues like climate change to the fore. The 10 days of disruption included road blockages around large areas of London, gluing themselves to the stock exchange and even climbing onto railways. The BBC reported that commuters dragged climate change protesters from the roof of a London underground train, which clearly shows the anger and frustration surrounding these protests. Yet, the idea that protests hinder everyday life tends to get in the way of appreciating the importance of protests. We need to stop considering the right to protest as an individualised right which only concerns the people that care about the matter at hand. David Mead, professor at the UEA, explains how we have a shared interest that the right to protest is protected. We need to think about protest as having what, I, what I've termed before a socialised value, by, by which I mean I have got an interest in you being able to protest. Even if I don't have any interest in your campaign, I have still got an interest, or I should still have an interest, both in you being able to protest and in you being able to protest about that topic. The collectivised nature of protests become even more important when considering the right is already dwindling before the new police bill even comes into force. The Past Tense blog considers the bill as, quote, the latest in a long line of repressive legislation aimed at restricting protests and limiting 
the effectiveness of political campaigning. The trend has always been empower the police, empower the police, empower the police, create more crimes. So you may be wondering then, if protests are restricted and legislation is increasingly regressive, why do people bother? Why do people run the risk of getting arrested and having a criminal record if the protest is just going to get stopped anyway and be unsuccessful? Well, let's consider then what makes a protest successful. Success isn't a one-size-fits-all category. Instead, in terms of protests, it depends on the aims of each specific movement. Sometimes you can tell immediately. So I think there's sort of, you know, good examples of protest having quite an immediate change. It would have been the late 1980s. Um, it was a protest about how much drugs companies were charging anti-AIDS, antivirals. And they sort of had sit-ins at the, the New York Stock Exchange and things like that. And then within quite a short time, uh, the drugs companies massively reduced the cost of the drugs. But sometimes, even the suffragettes perhaps, you know, at the time they were labelled as as terrorists or close to. And, and But it's taken us half a century or so to think, oh yes, they were right. While some movements have the aim of a specific change in society, this isn't the same for every protest. There are some that exist that maybe just want to change the atmosphere and society's attitudes. One of the most obvious movements we can look at is climate activism. Although there is the overarching goal to slow down global warming, there's also the aim of changing societal attitudes and rallying support for the movement. You know, we are in a different position, not a great position, I'd, I'd have to admit, you know, with with people thinking about the environment than we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. All these movements can be considered in some way a success, albeit in different ways and in different time frames. So it can actually be tricky to determine whether or not a protest is successful. The real challenge, however, in determining whether a protest is successful is how the public reacts. Maybe a good example is, is the Occupy protests about a decade ago, where, certainly in the UK, where they had camps outside uh, St Paul's for quite a long time in, in 2010, 2011. And much of the complaints about that was, oh, they don't seem to have an agenda, they're just complaining about stuff. They alternative agenda, they're just cross about stuff. So I think you've got a, a real difficulty when you're holding some sort of protest about something, a bit of activism, is, is to manage that tension between getting something on the public agenda, keeping it on the agenda, and almost by definition, you've got to be antagonistic to do so. You need some emotion to, to, to affect change in people and their attitudes and their political views and things. But you also need to get them on side. You need to be able to mobilise people. Clearly, there are a lot of different factors in determining whether a protest achieves its aims or it doesn't. But the hope of success declines when the police become involved. And yet, 
The thing to focus on here is not how the police stops the protests, but it's the implications that their actions have on society. Police tactics have long-term consequences of ensuring public confidence and legitimacy. We saw this with the case of Stephen Lawrence, where police mishandling led to an inquiry into institutional racism, and consequently, as The Guardian notes, the public lost faith in the police protecting them and their interests. So, to apply this to protests then, if the police continue to use unethical tactics like kettling, which placed students as young as 15 in danger during the student protests in 2010, then the knock-on effects of this will have a huge impact on how the public responds to policing. Now it's these knock-on effects which are part of the reason that the bill is coming into force, and we'll consider the dire consequences this will have in just a moment. One final point before though, was that the police force do not want the powers that the bill is bringing in. They realise that the powers are too extensive and that they will cause further tensions between the police and the public. You know, and when you've lost the police or elements of senior police, you're in a very difficult and strained situation. And if you then continue with that, you know, you're just making problems for yourself, quite frankly. So now, as we begin to unfold the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, just remember that it's those people that it's designed to help and protect, i.e. the police. It's those people that can see and understand the damage that it will bring. According to the official government website, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill emerged due to, quote, concerns that existing public order legislation is outdated and no longer appropriate for responding to the highly disruptive protest tactics used by some groups today. The way the bill came about was in fact rather strange. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, issued an investigation into whether the police needed more powers. But here's the strange bit, as David Mead explains. The review reported two days after the bill was introduced into Parliament. So the bill was being put to Parliament whether or not the HMIC said we need new powers or we don't. The evidence from reading the report was not particularly conclusive or persuasive, I have to say. Here we can clearly see that the government was just focused on bringing more restrictive powers through the disguise of protecting public order. We've already seen that public order laws tend to be unfairly balanced and regressive. The new bill is no exception. To consider the technical changes to the law, Mead identifies that public nuisance is becoming a statutory offence. So the idea is if you put it into statutory form, actually what you will do is allow the police to prosecute more easily. So there have been, for quite a few years, problems, from the police's point of view, problems of prosecuting people for public nuisance because if there are other offences, obstruction of the highway being one, um, you should use that. And the beauty that public nuisance has as a common law offence is it's got a lifetime sentence. You've got a much longer sentence as a possibility for them. Moreover, the bill attacks the very nature of protesting. 
Take the restrictions on noise, for example. The government advice explains how the bill will, quote, broaden the range of circumstances in which the police can impose maximum noise levels on protests, even those of single-person protests. It is impossible, I think, to conceive of a protest that is not going to be noisy. So that's why I've sort of labelled this um, an existential threat to protest, because it's attacking the very thing that protesters do to make their point, rather than a consequence of the protest of serious damage to property. And yet, we haven't even touched on the most dangerous part of the bill. With the bill comes enhanced powers of discretion. I don't think the law is anywhere near the problem. I think the problem of protesting is not the law at all, or if it is, it's one of many concerns. It is police discretion. The reason behind this is that the powers become predictive, meaning that the police only need to have an inkling or reasonable belief, as the bill calls it, about public disorder before they can step in. Quite clearly, we can see how problematic this is as a protest can be stopped even before it begins. And if this wasn't enough to convince you that the bill is killing our right to protest, consider how you might challenge this police discretion. If the police shuts down a protest you're participating in, because you can't challenge it by judicial review, you can't get into the courts at 20 minutes notice. So the, the option is, we're quiet, we don't have a protest that one notices, we don't want to have that protest in those conditions, we'll all go home, or we will just resist it and we'll all be noisy, and the police undertake you know, mass arrests. The problem with challenging the police decision is the sheer time it takes to reach a conclusion. By the time you've appealed, and it's declared that the police acted unlawfully, it's too late to continue the protest. And it may even be too late to protest that particular issue. Now, hopefully we can see why bringing this bill into force is dangerous. As Val Aston, professor at Swansea University notes, these are fundamental rights we're talking about. The right to protest, the right to freedom of assembly and association. The government decided to draft this bill even before they had the evidence, which gives you all the proof you need to suggest this bill is not a response to fears of public disorder, but an attempt to further control the freedoms in our society. Where do we go from here then? We can see the bill will further destroy our right to protest, but what are we going to do about it? Ultimately, we must understand the importance of protesting for society and the benefit it provides. In the case of Ziegler, the Supreme Court held, as Freedom News notes, Although the defendants did deliberately obstruct the highway, 
They did so in the course of exercising their rights to free speech and assembly, and therefore had a lawful excuse." End quote. The importance of this case is that it highlights the need to tolerate such disruption in order to maintain our rights and freedoms. Without this toleration, we will surely lose these rights further. And yet it goes further than this. Mead explains just how crucial protesting is to our society. You know, we, we need almost, you know, a discussion about the value of protest in a properly functioning democracy, why we should value it and why we should learn to be much more tolerant of it. When comparing the UK to other countries, we can see the difference in political participation. Take France, for example. There is a higher level of activism and commitment to protesting, even if it goes against the law. It's illegal in France to obstruct the highway, as it is in the UK. That still doesn't prevent, many years ago, French farmers burning cattle in the middle of major roads in major French cities. It doesn't prevent French hornets burning tyres. We simply don't have that level of activism in the UK. The point to take from this is that the UK law is perhaps not fully to blame, but society's lack of participation and higher tolerance towards unethical legislation. The Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill is silencing us. Our fundamental rights are being taken away. It's attacking the very nature of protesting. We must become aware of this danger. We must become tolerant of activism. And we must do something about it. <laughs>